Hi, everyone. Welcome to Key Change, a COC podcast, where we explore everything about opera from a fresh perspective. We're your hosts, Robin Grant Moran and Julie McIsaac. We have a fantastic conversation for you in episode nine. And before we get to it, we wanted to remind you that there's still time to get in your questions for our very special episode on March 30th. This is your chance to ask us anything. What have you always wanted to know about opera, but didn't know who to ask? Email us at audiences at coc.ca. Yeah, you can send us an email, a Facebook or Twitter comment, or even send us a voice message to be featured on the show. For more information on that, you can visit coc.ca slash keychange. One question we had was, why aren't there more operas in English? Excellent question. I think about that too, in terms of all the languages in the past, present, and potentially future that opera could be sung in. So we will answer that question for you. It's going to be such a fun episode. We can't wait to hear from you. I'm very excited for our audience to hear from our next guest, Michael Grayeyes. One of the things I love about doing this podcast is that we can set out to discuss one thing, but then it opens the doors to so many stories and experiences beyond what we could have expected. That's exactly what happened with our chat with Michael Grayeyes. So you might know Michael from his appearances on such Hollywood films and TV shows as True Detective on HBO, Woman Walks Ahead with Jessica Chastain. Fear of the Walking Dead, and Terrence Malick's New World. But he's also made a huge impact on the Canadian theatre and dance worlds. He was the first Indigenous student accepted into the National Ballet School of Canada. He's the founding artistic director of Signal Theatre, an interdisciplinary theatre company that blends dance, opera, music, design, and the spoken word. I met Michael first when he and Circle of Artists member Cole Alvis were co-directing Pomotuin and Galabartinit for Soundstreams. They received a Dora Award nomination for Outstanding Direction of that production. It's fascinating to hear what Michael himself finds compelling about artistic experiences and how he plays with time and space in his work. We'll also hear how he came to love and embrace opera as part of his multidisciplinary career. Michael, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. You have a lengthy list of accomplishments on both stage and screen. Can you tell us about how opera came to be part of your artistic practice? I, I, it was a number of years ago, actually, that uh, I did a CBC documentary. And I remember uh, in the press release, the, uh, the person writing it said, uh, I, was, uh, I had a restless creativity. And I think that explains why I have... Uh, worked across discipline. Um, I'm always fascinated in storytelling, in in performance, and of course, that's found different outlets. Uh, certainly, my work as a as an actor um, is is prominent, but I'm I'm extremely proud of the work I I do as a as a director, as a theater artist. So, uh, so opera seemed to be a natural um, outgrowth of uh, of my theater training and background. I began in performing arts as a classical ballet dancer with uh, the 
National Ballet of Canada and with the company of Elliot Feld in New York City. So dance, concert dance, of course, is like home base to me. Uh, those worlds are populated by, by music. Um, music is integral to our understanding of, of contemporary dance. Uh, so I was fortunate to grow up with the sound of live music in the studio every day, classical music, uh, contemporary music. So when the opportunity came uh, to work um, as a choreographer, I was uh, always attracted to voice. I was always attracted to um, uh, choral music. Uh, Bach has always been a, a personal favorite of mine. Um, something's always drawn me to that music. My first experiences with opera uh, began at the National Ballet School, where I was a student. Uh, we had a really uh, a wonderful music program. So our course study included, you know, major works. Uh, and we began studying um, opera, I remember. I remember very keenly studying Henry Purcell, of all things. And, you know, but I remember I just, I loved the music. So it was in school uh, that I was introduced to this music. You know, at that time, I hadn't uh, encountered many dance works that were that also employed um, voice. But really, my my interest was kindled, uh, you know, in school. And um, I remember my first tour of uh, Germany with the National Ballet. I remember I was in uh, some. Uh, we were somewhere Berlin or Dusseldorf or somewhere, and uh, CD technology had just emerged. And uh, the first CDs I bought were um, opera works because I knew I was like, this is fantastic new technology and I want to get the best recordings, uh, Deutsche Grammophone, all of that. And so, so opera has always had a place um, in my loves. Uh, when Lawrence Cherney, the artistic director of Soundstreams, uh, came to me in, gosh, it was the early 90s, uh, we began a relationship that um, is one of my most... Uh, most appreciated uh, working relationships in in the arts in Canada. Uh, we began by reworking a, a dance work uh, that his company had produced. And it was, gosh, maybe about uh, a decade later that Lawrence came to me with an idea. And he said, listen, I've, I've created, um, I've created uh, the beginnings of a relationship between a Canadian composer, Melissa Hoy, and uh, librettist, author, playwright, uh, Thompson Highway. And we wanted to know if you would be interested in leading uh, an exploration of this oratorio. At that time, it was an oratorio, uh, a, a non-staged music concert. And I, of course, jumped at the opportunity. So uh, we began working on uh, Pimutuin, which, of course, is the opera work or the music drama, if you will, uh, that came out of that uh, early conversation. So uh, really, it was Lawrence Journey that uh, uh, turned my love of opera and uh, choral music into 
something that I, I began to tackle as as a as a creative artist. You co-directed with Cole Alvis, remounting that first Cree opera. I was wondering, how did you come to be involved with it the second time round? Cole is is a tremendous uh, collaborator and and emerging director, and I was so pleased to work with Cole as as a co-director, as a co-creator of uh, Two Odysseys, uh, which is the work that emerged when we created Pumutuan. Uh, I explained to Lawrence, I said, there's, there's inherent staging in the libretto. Uh, at the time, we didn't know if we would be using surtitles. Um, so I suggested, I said, why don't we theatricalize some of this action? And Lawrence was excited by that idea. Of course, it took off to become, um, uh, at its premiere in 2008, a semi-staged work with dancers, as well as you know, singers uh, behind music stands, but but also involved in the action, you know, uh, peripherally. Uh, when we expanded it to tour um, in Northern Ontario and Quebec, uh, two years later, we uh, did away with the music stands altogether, and, and it emerged as a fully formed music drama. Inherent in that uh, journey of discovery, we began to really wonder about the world that uh, Thompson had created through his libretto, this land of the dead. The the action of Pumutuan takes place in the land of the dead and is based on a, a trickster story about how uh, trickster and his friend Migasu, the eagle, had you know were feeling very lonely for the departed, the people who had made their journey. Trickster decided to go, go to the land of the dead and transgressed sort of these universal um, barriers. Uh, and bring back the dead to the land of the living so he wouldn't miss them. Uh, of course, that resulted in catastrophe, as many as many stories often do. Uh, and, and we learn a lesson. The, the, the audience, um, the listener, learns a lesson about why, why these two worlds can never meet. So it was a provocative libretto, beautiful. And we began to imagine, um, almost from the moment uh, we staged that uh, uh, second tour, uh, Lawrence and I began talking about a companion work because at the time, uh, I think the, the music is approximately 30 minutes long and it doesn't really support a full evening work. As, as a marvelous producer, Lawrence said, well, what about a companion work? Um, something built along the same lines using uh, the same musicians, eight musicians, um, a chorus of you know 12 to 16, um, two soloists, and uh, I said, I'm on board because I think I think the idea of this land of the dead and this and the characters around it um, deserve a further exploration. So that began, again, another nearly decade long journey uh, to create Galabartnet, uh, which, of course, is the first Sami language opera work as as a as a corollary to Pemutuan. Uh, and that's where uh, we brought Cole on board. Uh, to begin our examination and and connection, Cole and I really uh, with Lawrence and our our cast began this exploration of how how these two works built on the same foundation connect and why they must be seen together. So that's uh, that's where the journey sort of ended up uh, when we finally staged two Odysseys, which is Pemutuan and Galabardnet as a unified work. I was fortunate enough to play imposter Rebecca Cuddy for a week in the Galabartonite uh, workshop period. And so I got to know that piece of work 
very intimately. And it is it was an incredible week of my life, um, getting to know the librettist, Rodna, and getting to, I got to work with you one day and working with Cole the rest of the time. Um, and how those two, the two stories really fit so beautifully together. Yeah, what you were saying has me curious, Mike, about um, the multidisciplinary approach that you take in your work. What is it about that multidisciplinary combinatory approach that feels important to you or natural to you? I've always looked at opera as an integrated work. You know, it's like um, it's it's like the the term you know uh, when we describe Wagner's uh, music dramas. You know, Gesamtkunstwerk, right? Gesamtkunstwerk meaning altogether work. So um, in indigenous uh, expression, in indigenous art expression, we don't look at disciplines as being a sort of a necessary delineator or, or descriptor to, you know, the way an artist work. You know, we, we have wonderful dancers who are singers. We have singers who are storytellers. We have writers who are actors. So um, within the indigenous arts context, uh, we, we're, we've always been making altogether artworks. Uh, so... Opera seemed um, the natural Western form to uh, integrate our performance um, ontologies, uh, our our approach to storytelling. So I think I was always attracted to opera for that because it it seemed to already encompass so much. And it's um, many of the folks that we've had on the podcast have talked about the physical reactions that they have listening to opera or feeling like they're suspended in time and talking about the, the physiology of that experience as both a performer or an audience member. And I'm curious, how does opera, any kind of live performance, elicit similar reactions in you? Like, how do you experience it in your body? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, music, music is, a, is, is a physical art form. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, when, when the bow hits the string, it creates a vibration of air and that vibration travels through space, you know, entering your ear, hitting your skin, hitting your body and, you know, your ear does its magic. And then all of a sudden this electrical impulse is sent you know, to your brain and, and, you know, your body moves, you know. Uh, who among us hasn't heard something um, irresistible and your body simply moves. So the, so the music is moving you already. So I've always felt music is a physical act. Um, yes, it's oral, of course, of course, that we, that we listen to it. Many artists that I truly admire talk about the visceral experience of art. Uh, I look at the, the painter Francis Bacon and he said, I paint so that people feel and see the way I do. So there are distortions to the work that he creates. There are distortions to the human form so that we experience viscerally through, through exaggeration, through a theatricalization of, um, you know, something, an object, a subject, a representation. By distorting it, it, it becomes... Uh, something that we cannot react to simply. We can't, we can't just absorb it. It becomes something that arrests us, that provokes us. So I, I look at art that way. I look at staging that way. I say, how can we stage something so that the audience understands it 
the way we want to understand it. Um, so for example, um, we react to stillness in a certain way. So I, th I think it's important when we're staging things that, you know, that we allow the spaces of a staged work to act upon us. We feel different. We experience stillness differently. Uh, silence is not, uh, you know, silence is not the absence of sound. It, it is a sound. And we experience silence. So, I, you know, I, I'm very cognizant of these sort of uh, physical signals um, that we experience through music. And my job um, as, a, you know, as a collaborator in the work is to help distort, provoke, um, exaggerate um, what we're seeing or experiencing um, in order uh, for the audience to understand the work more, more explicitly. Uh, and, and I think that the manipulations of, of time and space are, are crucial in, in that work. And I'm curious as to when you watch your colleagues work or other directors work, are you conscious of how you approach things differently due to your relationship with your physical body as a dancer and as a choreographer? Are you conscious of ways that you enter into the work, whether that's on a film set or in a theater opera rehearsal studio that is, um, that is unique due to that background that you bring? I hope, I hope so. I think I, I'm always looking for when I, when I look at an actor's work, whether it's on stage or on film, I'm always looking at the, at the physical expression. You know, how does that person stand? How, what do they do? What do they physically do? Um, because we are what we do, not what we say uh, for the most part. You know, when I look at, when I look at work, I'm always looking at the, the, the physical manifestation of it. Um, I'm a big admirer of the work of Ross uh, Manson and Kate Alton. And very often their works, you know, she's a choreographer and very often their works have a beautiful physical expression, uh, you know, a, a, you know, something, something tangible that we can see, that we can feel not only just what we've, what we've heard or what we've seen in terms of, you know, sonography or text or actor movement, but there's, there's something, something truly physically tangible about the work that leave us with, a, again, a visceral understanding of what they're, what they're trying to create. Um, I think that's essential, uh, especially as much of our work becomes more and more visual. Yeah. And do you have a recollection, Michael, of an experience that you had in watching a film or being in a theater where something impacted you viscerally in that way? Mm, yeah, I, I, I was watching a clip. Um, well, I'm a, I'm a tremendous fan of Wuppertal and the work of Pina Bausch. Um, mm -hmm. You know, her works are durational, right? So, so it's, it's, it's this extraordinary, um, there's a willingness on the part of the audience to uh, participate in the durational experience of these longer dance dramas. You know, the Italian director, uh, Casalucci, uh, created this incredible work and and there were two sort of like early humans, like Neanderthals or early Homo sapiens, and uh, they were behind a scrim, and we could just see them in the background, sort of in this dim dim light. And uh, the male came back into their their cave or whatever wherever they were uh, resting, and um, he they they had sex. You know, we, we could see them in the background, sort of dimly lit, and they were clearly having sex. And then he um, he kind of just r rolled away and and stopped moving. And she stood up, 
and she moved downstage towards the scrim and i don't know what um what she was working with but there was some kind of mud or it was blood or something and there was uh she started painting on the scrim i'll never forget that moment it's because it's the birth of painting to me that was the birth of painting cave painting and it came out of a, a woman's response to you know this momentary um you know, connection with this man, whether he was part of her community or if that was her partner or whatever, but, but painting was born out of that intimate moment. And so, yeah, when, when things like that happen, you you know, I'll I'll never forget that moment. The idea of feeling things as an audience member, feeling the the airwaves, the pressure of the vibrations of the sound um, has me very reminiscent for theater and opera. And I hope we get to go back soon. Um, But when we do, I'm wondering, what do you hope audience members take with them when they leave after one of your productions? Yeah, I think, I think as we, as we sit here at the, at the, at the, God, is it the middle of the pandemic? I'm afraid that it is, actually. Um, And we've lost the capacity to gather and to have meaningful exchanges as groups. Um, I long for, for, you know, that summer and the fall when we we mounted that work. Uh, It will return. The gathering, people gather, and we've always gathered. We've gathered from time immemorial. Um, I hardly think... Uh, this will count as anything other than a blip in our uh, collective history of uh, performing for each other in space, in the same space. So I, I'm hopeful that as we walk out of uh, uh, this global pandemic, um, we'll recognize uh, the veracity of, of the, the theatrical expression that there's an, a, an ephemerality to this moment. We are here on this night, um, on, in this space, in this city, and this thing only can exist now. It can only exist between us. And then the performance will end and we'll walk away, we'll get into the cabs, we'll get into our Ubers, we'll take the subway, we'll leave. There may be no recording. We'll never be able to to zoom it. We'll never be able to watch it on, you know, the streaming channels. Um, it will only exist for us, for that, that small group of, of humans gathering. Uh, and so that's where I recognize the power. The power is, um, how do we, how do we feel? How do we physically feel? I think after nearly, uh, you know, eight months of zoom meetings, um, I am excited to sit at a table with other people and oh, drink yeah. a bad coffee and <laughs> eat the stale dishes and have that awful light, you know, as you know, like it's all something I can feel and I, yeah. I miss desperately. Uh, and, you know, the uncomfortable chairs and, you know, falling asleep, you know, at the four hour mark, you know, it's all, it's all something I think we'll, we'll really appreciate when we get back to it. 
Well, and in this in-between time that we're in right now, what projects are do you find yourself working on and where might our listeners see you or hear you next? Uh, well, um, at the moment, Signal Theatre is uh, developing a small project. We're, we're, I'm not directly involved with it. We're, we're acting more as producers uh, with some wonderful artists. But currently, my, uh, my focus is in performance, uh, and it has been for the past year. I was very fortunate during COVID uh, to be working in Los Angeles for about f- almost five months, working on a new television series called Rutherford Falls. Rutherford Falls is a new half-hour comedy uh, from uh, Sierra Teller-Ornelas, um, a Navajo writer and producer, Ed Helms, and Mike Schur from uh, The Office and The Good Place, Parks and Rec. So this is uh, you know, a really high-level new series. Um, I'm, I'm one of the... Uh, principal actors in the, in the work, uh, it will be coming, uh, to Peacock, which is NBC streaming service in late March, early April. Uh, please watch for it. I think it's a landmark work. Uh, we've had the largest, uh, writer's room in the history of network television, um, that was native. Um, so we were 50% native writers on the show, which is a, which is a, a industry first. And I've also got wild Indian coming out, uh, very soon, where it's a it's a feature film that I lead uh, that is in competition at this year's Sundance Film Festival. Fantastic! We'll put some information in the show notes for listeners, and we'll be keeping an eye and ear out for all of that. I'm very excited, really looking forward to all those projects that Michael has in the works. They all sound fascinating, and uh, I'm just really hungry for that content. I can't wait. Yeah, the reviews for Wild Indian at the Sundance Film Festival are are banging. He's everywhere right now. Yeah, I actually haven't. I'm going to be completely transparent here. I haven't read any of the reviews. I just have read that they've been positive um, because I don't want to be tainted by other critics' ideas of what they're seeing. Like, I don't want that coloring my experience with it. What really struck you, Robin? What are some of your takeaways or things that you're left pondering after our conversation with him? I was the visceral nature of art and how it's not just I'm seeing this thing on stage and I'm hearing this thing, but I'm physically being impacted by the vibrations of the sound coming from the instruments, the sound coming from the singers. And I can't remember if he mentioned this or I just went there in my head, but the natural extension of the movement of the performers, like that is shifting airspace. And it might not be anything like when you hear an orchestra, you feel the orchestra. But I feel like in live performance, even just having people moving on stage impacts your physicality while you're sitting and watching. Yeah. And likewise, his what he was telling us about stillness, because if you use movement mindfully or to create a certain impact or to elicit a certain reaction, then likewise, that stillness can be equally compelling. And I think physically in our bodies, we register stillness or as humans, as animals, that stillness means something to us. So if there's been a lot of movement and then suddenly there's stillness, that like animal self in you goes, huh, what's happening? you're like on alert or you're aware that something's shifting, something exciting has happened. It it pulls your focus in a good way. Yeah. Like not everything has to be filled with movement 
and with sound and the spaces in between. Now I'm thinking about composers who use silence really meaningfully, or there's been like a wall of sound throughout almost the entire opera. And then near that end of act four, there's this moment where it's completely silent. And then the character speaks something instead of singing something like the very end of Bohem where Mimi has died. Sorry, spoiler alert. I should have said that first. I don't know if our audiences can handle that, Julie. <laughs> I mean, it only came out how many years ago? <laughs> and and but, produced how many times? Um, but I do find like the fact that he was drawing these corollaries, or like you said, I don't know if he said it or if it's some connection I started to make in my head, but about what's happening physically. And then for, for us to think about what does that mean musically or what are the musical equivalents or the musical sonic corollaries of what he's talking about? His allusions to Francis Bacon and that that quote, I paint so people see and feel the way I do, was like, we get on stage to share ideas, to share feelings. I don't know. It just all, all was so delicious. Yeah. And two things that came to the fore for me there was one being as a director or creator, how you feel like you're on this quest toward wanting to invite the audience into this experience of seeing the world or experiencing the world or the moment, the story, the character's dilemma in the way that you feel it or the way that you see it. So it's this constant quest throughout that creation and rehearsal process that can be rewarding or really frustrating, depending on how close you feel like you're getting to that goal. Uh, and the other thing being that when Michael was describing, you know, the movement of the strings of an instrument and then the, the through, through air and how it First, I love that he mentioned your skin, like sound hitting mm-hmm. your skin, because I think mm-hmm. particularly in like Western European operatic tradition, we we can get very cerebral, like on a mm-hmm. level of musical analysis, for example, very intellectual and very up in our heads in terms of how we're navigating the material. And it's so good to be reminded, like be in your body. What is your skin telling you? What is your skin experiencing? Because that is as important, as central to the experience as anything else. And uh, back in October, we were able to gather together, um, composer in residence, Ian Cusson hosted this conversation called Mind Body Music. And we had these scientists, these neuroscientists, these people who specialize in physiology and the, the workings of the inner ear and how that connects with your brain. And they were able to talk us through some really cool stuff. So for anyone who's interested in hearing more about this, do check that out, Mind Body Music on coc.ca. I love all the threads of connections is basically what I'm saying. <laughs> That was a great conversation. And yeah, it exactly what Michael was talking about. Like, I don't know about you, but one of the reasons I love romantic opera, like why why I love Strauss and Wagner so much is because of that feeling when the orchestra starts, when the overture begins and you just get hit. Like you can physically feel it in a way that you can't. I mean, I don't, I shouldn't say you can't. I'm, it's not for me to decide your experience, but I don't get that from Baroque opera because the orchestra is smaller. So you're not getting physically walloped 
by the sound. Speaking of Wagner, what were your impressions of what Michael shared with us, like comparing the Gesamtkunstwerk philosophy and sort of indigenous ideologies around art and cross-disciplinary creation? Well, it's a thing that we've been doing forever as indigenous people. You know, there isn't so much of a separation between the storyteller and how the story's told. So when Wagner was doing this revolutionary thing of having this total artwork where, you know, the the composer is the librettist, is the designer, is the, you know, is the is everything. That's kind of really old. That that's not, he wasn't doing anything new for a, a portion of the population. But things had just the way cultures evolve. Thing, he was bringing it back together when it had never separated. Right. In the in the city or the town, the country, the community he was a part of, it was seen as this revelatory, revolutionary yeah. idea. Whereas like you're saying, actually, there's there's a lot of pre-existing uh, communities and practices historically. Yeah. So in this weird way, Wagner was kind of, and I say this, painfully aware of how he's been used of his opportunistic tendencies um, of his anti-Semitism. He was kind of bringing everything, a fractured concept of art back together, that, that fragmentation of art where, you know, you have your director and your librettist and your composer and your set designer and they're all very different entities. Mm-hmm. I uh, what really resonated with me is what Michael was saying around that our different disciplines don't necessarily need to delineate us like from each other or from parts of ourselves. Like we don't need to feel that those things are separate. Uh, and I found that really freeing or liberating too, because I have uh, I've mentioned it a few a few times off and on on the podcast, but I, I come from this background of theater. I've, I've done a lot of theater as a performer, creator, director, and so sometimes in the opera world, I feel like a bit like I don't belong, or that that is something separate that I shouldn't mention. Like it's bad to mention that I come from theater or something. Like it's a bad word, uh, but it's it's just empowering to be reminded that. Like Perrin said too, that not and in episode six, like no one has all the skills necessary to be a general director. Some people are going to be stronger in this, and then they're going to have to bring people on board to help them with that, and vice versa. Other people have different um, balances of skill set. So some of us might be really strong in terms of our German and Italian language skills, but be lacking in other areas. And likewise, some people might be really good at character analysis or visual storytelling on stage, and need support in terms of musical analysis. So. It's just great to be reminded that those delineations uh, don't need to hold us back. We all have our strengths. And choosing a vocation within that based on our strengths, and maybe not our strengths, maybe our interests, maybe our passion, maybe we fell into it. And then you you get there and you have your you have this skill set. But you might have other things to offer. And if everything's so carefully separated out, it can be really hard to communicate. Like, as as a theater critic, I kind of have to decide, do I want to be a critic 
or an artist because they're two separate skill sets where near the twain shall meet. They're seen as oppositional rather or adversarial rather than mutually beneficial. And you as a director, you might have a really great skill set somewhere else, but you can't employ it because you're a director and directors don't do that. And we have everything so clearly boxed off. So you're only bringing part of yourself. Maybe I'm putting too much on the the boundaries and the classifications that we give ourselves and each other. Well, and coming back to your own experiences and your own identity as an artist slash critic, Robin, uh, what can you share with us about having been in the rehearsal hall in the room with Michael and Cole when that Soundstreams project was being developed, being rehearsed? It was a really collaborative place to be, like strikingly collaborative. It felt like everybody had a voice and singers could, if there was something that seemed weird in the choreography or that just wasn't working, that they had the space to vocalize that. Or if someone wanted to add some physicality, that there was space to bring that idea forward. Um, that And that we were all taking care of this, this creation together. And I wasn't actually in that production. I was filling in for a week for Rebecca Cuddy, um, who is also a Circle of Artists member. Hi, Rebecca. They were they were away doing. They had some other contract for that for that week of rehearsals, and so I was filling in for them. And even within that. I felt like I was a valued member of the cast by the other cast members, by Cole, by Michael. And my ex- my performance experience is limited, but from what I've had, it was a very meaningful experience. I usually feel like I'm showing up and doing a job that I'm not part of it. The thing that I wasn't actually a part of, I felt more a part of. Oh, that's interesting. Than things that I have been a part of. Hmm. And I think that just really speaks to the, the culture and the ethos around how productions are structured hmm. um, with Michael and Cole. I'm so glad you brought that up because it, it reminds us that the idea of inclusion and someone being included is much more complex and nuanced than their name being listed in the program and being credited mm-hmm. for a particular contribution that there's a lot of other things that go into someone feeling like they're part of the collaboration and that they're included and their voice is heard. Yeah. Like there's, it's no secret that mainstream opera, mainstream theater is highly hierarchical. And it makes sense that it is. You have tons of moving parts. You have to have things organized. Mm-hmm. Like, I get it. Mm-hmm. But then we attach things to hierarchy that maybe doesn't need to be there. Mm. Um, 
and it felt like all the weight of a hierarchy was gone. And what was it like with Michael in the room? Like given his background as a dancer and a choreographer, I'm curious about how that impacted like your interactions with him or how that read to you. He, one day he was directing a scene that had a fair amount of movement in it. And he came down and went from, we were divided up into groups and he went to each group spoke to everybody and he just the way he moved through the space he he had this this way of expressing exactly what he wanted with his whole being not just his words not just saying you should do this try it this way he would physically do it so it was very clear what he wanted but it was also incredibly inviting and safe and warm mm. reminds me um canadian theater director Kim Collier, who's also worked in in opera as well, I've seen her do this thing where she'll take on the emotional reality of the character's situation. So you see her sort of testing an idea and and physically like embodying the idea is one thing, but she'll do this thing where she like emotionally enters the moment and the character's perspective and point of view and emotional world. And you'll see her do it. Like you'll see it come over her. You'll see her sink into it. And so she tests it. She tries out that reality and then she'll come out of it and like then offer you the direction or offer you the observation. And it's really beautiful to witness. I really love those directors who kind of, who go there, whether that's yeah. physically or emotionally, alongside you so they can like report back from the field and tell you what yeah. they discovered. It, it, it makes it so much easier to get to what they're looking for mm-hmm. when they're embodying it with you. Yeah. Like it uh, makes it easier to go there. Totally. Yourself. Totally. And of the of the projects that Michael shared with us of the things he's got upcoming, okay, Wild Indian, Rutherford Falls, which one are you most excited to see and why? <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm, I, I can't decide. Honestly, I want to see them both. What about you? Yeah, no, ditto. I was, I did a little bit of reading about Wild Indian and then I stopped myself because typically if I go see previews in the cinema, so before something I'm seeing, if it starts to look good, I just close my eyes and like cover my ears and I'm like, it already looks so good. I don't want to know anymore. I just want to go and see it and be surprised and moved. And that's how I felt reading about Wild Indian. So after a few sentences, I stopped, Julie, stop reading. Just go see it when it comes out because it sounds phenomenal. Can't wait. And then Rutherford Falls, I was reading a little bit about that. And what really struck me is that Rena shared something with us when we chatted with her in a previous, Rena Rusin, musicologist, when we asked her, like, what's your dream project? And she said she'd love to see an Indigenous comedy. And from Mm -hmm. the reading I've been doing about Rutherford Falls is there is comedic elements to it, like some of the people in the writer's room are comics. And so it's exciting to see what that might yield in terms of uh, themes um, Mm -hmm. and some and and a lot of Indigenous writers and performers. And yet that there's those comedic elements. So really looking forward to that. Yeah, that that's a really good point. Um, We talk a lot about like trauma stories and like indigenous people we're all different of course i can't we're not a monolith but by and large we're funny people like <laughs> there's you to survive and start thriving in this world you have to be funny you have to be able to laugh at stuff that is really important and i think a thing that gets missed a lot of the time 
So that does put Rutherford Falls a little bit, maybe not ahead, but I'm thinking about it a little bit differently right now. Cool. And maybe prioritizing differently. Well, very exciting to see all these things in store and uh, mm-hmm. and to celebrate like we did when we were chatting with Ian and Cherie about these these new stories being told and the agency of these Indigenous storytellers and the, the wealth of creativity that's happening. And I'm really excited for everything coming up and what the future holds for every for us for other BIPOC artists for all the stories that get to be told on people's own terms It was great hearing from Michael about those artistic experiences that evoke such a visceral reaction. I know I've had those moments and uh, Robin, you've mentioned some of yours and audience, we want to hear from you. We want to know yours. So let us know in an email, Uh, send that to audiences at coc.ca or send us a message on social media. We also want to hear your questions about opera for our special episode on March 30th. One thing I've always wanted to know about was I guess, related to the physiology of voice types, like a countertenor, that very high voice, what is it about them physically or about the biology of their vocal folds, maybe, that makes them suited to singing in that way? What makes a high voice versus a low voice or a robust voice versus a readier voice? Send us your questions by March 5th. And if we can't answer them, we'll find someone who can. And if you're a COC subscriber or member, you have access to exclusive bonus content and extended interviews. Michael talks with us about his greatest artistic influences, who we should be watching for in the future, and so much more. So stay tuned. Join us next time. We're getting into a topic that's very near to my heart, opera criticism. There's lots to unpack with that, and I can't wait. Me too. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. Be the first to find out about free events and concerts from the COC by signing up for our monthly e-opera newsletter at coc.ca slash e-opera. Thank you to all of our supporters for making Key Change possible. This week, we want to especially thank every COC member, subscriber, and donor for coming on this journey with us as we explore new ways to share opera's unique power. So to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to Key Change, wherever you get your podcasts. Key Change is produced by the Canadian Opera Company and hosted by Robin Grant Moran and Julie McIsaac. To learn more about today's guests and see the show notes, please visit our website at coc.ca slash keychange.